Our scripture lesson this morning comes from the uh, second letter to the Corinthians. Second Corinthians, we're going to start reading 1 verse 23 and end with 2 verse 4. But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Amen, dear saints. You may be seated. What a pleasure it is to worship with you. What an honor it is to preach the gospel and what a joy it is to be the people of God. After a one-week hiatus where we were honored to have our friend John Cherney here last Sunday, we do return to this great book of Second Corinthians. But as always, before we look to the written word of God and get our hearts addressed by the preached word of God to the divine logos, the ultimate personal word of God, Jesus Christ, let's pray together, shall we? Father, we thank you for that. We thank you that all your word is unified, that brings your people to your Son. Thank you that you've loved us so much that you've given us every good and perfect gift in Jesus. So we commit now unto you this sermon, our hearing. May it be blessed by your Holy Spirit. Fill us with that joyful spirit, that wonderful, powerful, sovereign, enlightening spirit of Jesus, that we might love you well. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So way back in the very first sermon in the series in Second Corinthians, I mentioned to you that as per my normal pattern of preaching through a book, we may need to address certain introductory matters as they come to us. And that certainly happens here in this text. So we are going to look at an item that we might have addressed earlier, but it's natural to, to do so here. And that has to do with these issues of Paul's visit to uh, Corinth, the painful letter that he had to write that he references in verse 4. Also in chapter 7, verse 8, it's brought out rather clearly. Also, just the nature of their relationship at this time. So what I'm going to do for you here is flesh out the chronology and the events so that you can better understand what's going on here at the end of chapter 1 in the beginning of chapter 2. Now, I, I believe with other commentators and other exegetes and, and theologians and pastors that after Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, he made a trip back to Corinth, and that trip and experience was very difficult and painful. It was very trying for him. So he made that trip, and after that visit, he writes this oft-referred-to as painful letter that we don't actually have extant um, before us. It would be a letter between 1st and 2nd 
Corinthians, according to this interpretation, we'll have another note about that in a moment, but he writes this painful letter, as I mentioned, referenced especially in 2 Corinthians 7-8. Now this letter then probably got delivered to the Corinthian church parish by his friend, Paul's friend Titus, who brought it to Corinth. They would have had a family time after their Sunday morning worship service and had one of the officers read that painful letter. Probably was pretty difficult. And then what happened was, in the meantime, this is where this whole discussion of Paul's not going to Corinth comes up. In the meantime, Paul chose not to go back to Corinth. Perhaps while he was there, the first time he had said, I'm going to come back real soon, But he didn't. He changed his mind. And for very good reason, we're actually going to see that rationale in the text for today. So he doesn't go back to Corinth. And then later, Paul meets up with Titus, probably in the city of Philippi, although we're not sure. And Titus gives Paul a very glowing, heartening report about the church in Corinth, that they responded very well to his painful letter. And then after that, Paul writes Second Corinthians and sends it off to the church there. Now, it is true, dear, as you should know, and if you're familiar with Second Corinthians, some of you might recognize that it seems like chapter 10 through 13 is a little different spirited than chapters 1 through 9. And some commentators believe that Chapters 10 through 13 may contain part of the painful letter. Now, I I don't think we need to accept that. I don't personally. I don't think it would be heresy to accept that. I don't think there's anything uh, heterodox about it. But the reality is there's some people that see that. And you can see a a change in, in, in perspective, kind of a spirit. So, you know, these people are thinking that, okay, Paul... Uh, the Corinthians put those together. But at any rate, we have the written word of God before us, and we know it's integrated, and we know it's true, we know it's inspired, we know it's inerrant, and we know that it's given to us for the upbuilding of our faith. Today's text does include a whole lot of spiritual and emotional dynamics, though, and that's really good for us. And therefore, let's make it our goal this Resurrection Day to be good stewards of pain, faith, and love as Christ's church. Looking together at 2 Corinthians 1.23 through verse 4 of chapter 2. Title of the sermon, Pain, Faith, and Love. Uh, if you're new here and you'd like to use the outline, it's provided, the doctrine. Pain, faith, and love is the ordinary path to Jesus and to Christ's likeness. Sin led to the fall of man in the garden, which results in more sin, more pain, and more misery. But God's love in Christ led to him sending his son in his incarnation, in his life, his ministry, His death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, his session, his interceding at the Father's right hand as the high priest, as we mentioned earlier, crowned in glory and honor right now, ruling over the church and the whole universe, every atom, every subatomic particle, everything under the rule and governance and sovereignty of King Jesus right now. This is good news for us. 
Then the applied atonement of Jesus by the Holy Spirit leads us believers in Christ, in his church, to love for God and more love for God and love for each other in the body of Christ, the church. Still, the divine human matrix of good and bad, darkness and light, life and death is with us, is it not, still in this fallen world? as we still struggle with our flesh and sin, the world and the devil. Therefore, pain, faith, and love is the ordinary path to Jesus and to Christ's likeness. First, sin always results in pain. You know, that's a very healthy thing for us to understand, accept, and live by. Sin always brings pain. Always. In every case, it brings misery, pain, suffering, bad, horrible thing. Every sin does. Every sin is accounted for. Every sin is judged by God. Either on the cross of Jesus Christ who took it in his own body for his elect church or ultimately in the bodies of damned people in hell. Every sin is accounted for. Sin brings Misery. If we want misery, and we're perverse enough to want it, the very best way to get miserable is to sin. One of the reasons God commands us not to sin is just because he loves his creatures enough to tell us what is best for us. If we want misery, sin. But if conversely we want grace, goodness, life, hope, joy, peace, purpose, and every other good thing, there's only one way to experience those things, and that is through our living union with Jesus Christ, the God-man, the head of the church. That's the only way to have those. No other way. Only through the Lord Jesus, the shepherd of this body. You know, Paul talks a lot about pain or its related concepts in the six verses of our scripture lesson for today. As a matter of fact, there are eight references to pain or this difficult dimension of life mentioned there. We're also struck here, I think, by just how sensitive, how caring, how tender, how solicitous of the feelings of other Christians the great Apostle Paul really was. You know, sometimes we think of him as this rough and tumble, type A guy, gung-ho, go do it, get the job done. But really, at heart, he was all heart, soft as a teddy bear. You know, every apostle, every good pastor is vicious and cruel against the enemies of the church and takes them on and slays them and kills them and beats them. At the same time, the sensitive good pastor and the apostle is gentle and tender with the lambs of the church, the people of God. It's that incredible stretch of dynamic that is important. And and Paul, of course, set the example. We do all know, I trust, that there would be no pain in the universe at all if there was no sin. Sin and the fall is the source of all the evil in the world today. Every single bit of it. All of it. Sin and the fall explains it all. Hey, that rhymes. I didn't even plan to do that. That's really good. 
You can remember that. Sin in the fall explains it all. And it does. But because of Jesus, it doesn't end there. It's not hopeless. Hope is far from being lost. Sin always results in pain. Don't forget that. Next time you're tempted to sin, and you're thinking, eh, it's just a little sin. I can do it. God will forgive me. Which is, by the way, not the attitude of a true Christian. Not one that loves God. Never. No, that's not an option. But every time you're tempted to sin, just recognize it's going to make you miserable. And probably other people too. Every time. It's in our best interest not to sin, but we can't not sin, can we? Unless we're in Jesus and filled with the Spirit. And even then, we're still going to sin. And frankly, it's not the worst Situation because it reminds us that we need Jesus every Lord's Day and come back and hear His grace. So we'll always continue to sin in this world, but we should really seek to avoid it. Sin always results in pain, but faith in and love for, for Christ redeems it. Did you know that's really true? <laughs> Let me say it again. Faith in and love for Christ redeems sin. You might say, oh... Can God redeem sin? Yes, he can. It's very important that we come to believe this and experience it. We should hate our sin, of course. But look, God is so wonderful, so sovereign, so magnificent, that he can even bring good out of our evil. Do you know that all your pain and mine can be put to good use? and that can actually enhance our life in Christ. That's no encouragement to sin. These last four words, though, are the key. Our life in Christ. Sin, pain, evil can be used by God to enhance our life in Christ. Outside of Jesus, sin, pain, evil has no redemptive value at all. Here's the, here's the thing, dears. What hardships, sufferings, and pains have dogged you all your life, even to this day? What is it that's really bugged you, that's something you've never been able to shake, that even to this day you're still concerned about it, or maybe obsessed with it, just wrapped up in it? In faith, turn all of those things over to your King Jesus, your gentle, kind shepherd, Give them all to him. In faith, turn them over to him. Say, yes, Lord, I know I am nothing but sin outside of you. Go as low as you can. Get the most accurate picture of yourself as a decrepit sinner as you can so that you can enjoy the glories of Jesus Christ and his true gospel as you can. This is... The way you turn all of your sins, your struggles, your hardships over to Jesus so that he, the sovereign, will employ those for your greatest advantage. In this way, then, you will experience a living expression of these two famous and well-known verses of Holy Scripture, one which my brother John Cherney quoted again last Sunday, and that's Romans 8.28. God causes all things to work together, all things to work together for good to those who are called by God, those who love Him according to His purpose. 
God causes all, all things to work together for the good for those who love God, those called according to his purpose. And 1 Thessalonians 5.18, give thanks in all circumstances. All circumstances? You sin, you confess your sin, and you can turn around and say, thank you, God. Thank you that even that happened in my life. All circumstances, this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 Pain, faith, and love is the ordinary path to Jesus and to Christ's likeness. Now from the text, let us comprehend how God uses pain, faith, and love in his elect church. Notice this is his elect church, not from... uh, any false uh, imitation. We're looking at verse 23 of chapter 1 of Second Corinthians going through verse 4 of chapter 2. Now, lest any of us think or are tempted to believe that we can leave one of these three things out in an equation in a fallen world as redeemed Christian churchmen, I want you to know that's not possible. All three of these go together. Pain, faith, and love. Now, it is true, dears, if there was no sin, if sin never entered the universe, think about this. I've taught you this before. It's a tremendously profound fact, though, uh, well worth contemplating. If Adam had stayed upright in the garden as the federal head, and all his progeny, including us, theoretically, if we existed, had never sinned, there would be no pain in the universe. No suffering, no evil at all. But do you know that there would also be no Savior, no Redeemer? There would be no venue for this great, triune, wonderful, sovereign, precious, real, true, and only God to show his greatest attributes like mercy and grace and love in the highest degree? Why would there be need for mercy if there was no sin? Why would there be need for grace if there was no iniquity? Why would there be need for special electing love if there was no hell to be avoided? God in his infinite sovereignty allowed it for his greater glory. So when we suffer pain, anguish, suffering, hardship, whatever it might be, temptation, anything we ought to recognize that God gets greater glory through Jesus Christ in the gospel and the proclamation of it through his holy church than he would if we hadn't sinned. In fact, it is absolutely true that you, you who love Jesus Christ, who are faithful in the church, are in a better place right now not just when you go to heaven, right now, than Adam was before he sinned in the Garden of Eden. You're in a better place. You have the righteousness not of your own self in obeying the law perfectly, but in Christ who clothes you with himself and his righteousness, which is ultimately better. He's the God-man giving you his righteousness. Therefore, dears, with humility, let us seriously consider and assimilate into our hearts, minds, hands, and feet how 
God uses pain, faith, and love in his elect church. First, he gives us opportunity to repent, verses 23 and 24 of chapter 1. Paul writes, But I call God to witness against me, which is a pretty strong, by the way, that's a strong statement he makes there. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Remember I told you about the, the coming after First Corinthians and not coming the second time. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. Now, frankly, I often think the phrase opportunity to repent is misused and misunderstood, but in the context of a true, vibrant, Christ-loving church filled with sinner saints who are still growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord, being filled with all the glorious love of God in Christ Jesus, that saying really is true and has real meaning. Time to repent. And it can be appropriately applied. The language of verse 23, quoting, it was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth, suggests at least two things, and I'd like you to consider them with me first. That rather than the false charge that was being trumped up against um, the apostle here, that he, he wimped out of coming back to Corinth. Uh, some were saying, you know, he, he was just afraid to come back that second time. Instead of that being true at all, actually the fact was that he extended and showed patient mercy to the Corinthian Christians by not making that second trip. And secondly, that Paul's restraining of himself from making that visit actually, in fact, did give the Corinthian church parish opportunity, time, to recognize their error and repent of it. And I'm going to speak about that in a little while so you'll understand what we're referring to. As a matter of fact, they did just that. They recognized their error and they repented of it. And we're going, Lord willing, to see that very graphically in verses 5 through 11 of the sermon two weeks from today after General Assembly. And we look at that, Lord willing. Now, I, I think Paul's very gracious here in verse 24 where he writes, that we lord it over your faith but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. The apostle and every true pastor doesn't lord the authority over the people. He serves them. He encourages them. He builds them up in their most holy faith. He sets an example for them. And that's what Paul's doing here. He's an under-shepherd of the great shepherd, Jesus Christ, and he is discharging his, Paul's, apostolic duties And he's also trusting that God will indeed work in his elect and redeemed church people. Don't forget that in the pastoral epistles, Paul made that remarkable statement that everything he does is for the good of the elect. That's true. That's what ministers do, and that's what you do, too, as churchmen. Everything we do is for the good of God's elect. And that's what happened here. They did repent to the glory of God in Christ Jesus, and we'll see that 
in a little while. So how God uses pain, faith, and love in, in his elect church. He gives us opportunity to repent, and he gives us opportunity to rejoice, verses 1 to 3 of chapter 2. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you, for if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. Now, as we can see, the angst in this relationship between the Corinthians, whom Paul loved, as we know from verse 4 and other places, in, in Paul's heart. And the dynamic around this letter and this trip. His point is really a good one, isn't it? Can you imagine him going to Corinth and no one in the one culture and society in that corrupt, vicious, wicked, polluted, immoral, idolatrous city did the right thing and would embrace him? He'd be all alone. Now, he would have done it if he had to, but I'm sure he didn't want to. Where would he have to turn? That's what he's saying here in this, these verses. On the other hand, the great apostle had so much faith in the goodness and power of God, again, working in, his, in and through his real, sinful, elect, authentic, covenanted, baptized Christian people, church in Corinth. He had enough faith in God that he was confident that there would indeed be, quoting him, joy and enough of it to go around. Now this sincere expectation on the part of Paul for joy, found in verse 3b, is a remarkable aspect of faith, his faith. Instead of anticipating a continuing dread and misery, even as those negative emotions had existed in the midst of the tension between the apostle and the Corinthian Christians, Paul envisaged by faith an eventual result of joy, and that really did come to be. In Christ's dear regenerated churchmen, we must never lose heart and never lose perspective. How God uses pain, faith, and love in his elect church. He gives us opportunity to repent, to rejoice, and finally, verse 4 of chapter 2, he gives us opportunity to reflect and to think. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. That's a beautiful phrase, isn't it? Paul had that abundant love for the Corinthians. Ultimately, everything true Christians and all Christ called ministers do in faith is done in love and for the goal of more love for God the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit through the God-man Jesus Christ and more love for the church and through her the love spreading and pouring out into the world around us. Now this verse 4 graphically shows us the heart of Paul. Even when he had to sting the Corinthians, and rightly so, his aim was always their betterment in the love of Christ. Now I'll explain to you something else that's interesting. And I do agree with the commentators that think 
But someone in the Corinthian congregation, some individual, we don't know who it was, seriously offended the Apostle Paul. There must have been something that took place. We really don't know what it was, but it was a serious offense. This led to Paul's writing the painful letter to that church to deal with that person, that problem. That letter was written. The Corinthian parish received that letter, probably at Titus's hand, and miraculously and wondrously dealt properly with the problem person. And then, as we will see, Lord willing, in the verses that follow, this offender, whoever he was, assuming it was a man, after being disciplined by the church, sincerely repented of his sin. He obviously really repented of it. I think that's what's going on here. You'll see it in verses 5 through 11. And upon his repentance... Paul the Apostle urges the Corinthian church to forgive him, to re-receive him into their hearts and fellowship. And Lord willing, in two weeks we'll see that in verses 5 through 11. It's a beautiful picture. I used to, I confess, I used to think that this was an obvious reference to the immoral man in chapter, or I can't remember the chapter in 1 Corinthians who had his father's wife, and probably a stepmother, and the church wasn't doing anything about it. I used to think that. I actually don't anymore. I mean, it's not a completely um, impossible interpretation, but I I agree with this one, and it's it's upheld by other uh, commentators as well. And, And so... Keep that in mind. Reflection here is a major part of Christian living. We do learn from our mistakes, our errors, and our sins, don't we? It's an important thing. We learn from our mistakes, our errors, our sins. And we make the goal of our faith and repentance love. The goal of faith and repentance is love. Love for God in Christ Jesus and love for each other in Christ Jesus' church. As always, let's do some very exciting application this morning and consider why pain, faith, and love are inevitable aspects of life even in the redeemed church. Now we've touched on much of this already, but there's even more benefit we may wring out of these life experiences here by the grace of God. Now, the word inevitable may strike some of you as peculiar, but again, because of sin, all three of these subjects, pain, faith, and love, are unavoidable. If we are new creatures in Christ, as per 2 Corinthians 5.17. Obviously, if we're not, if we're still in Adam and we're dead in trespasses and sin, none of this applies. But if we're in Christ, pain, faith, and love always apply in this world. Let's see why pain, faith, and love are inevitable aspects of life, even in the redeemed church. First, because sin is always being rooted out of us through sanctification. Now, sin is the cause of our misery, as we noted earlier, but its removal from us in Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit is also the impetus for our developing Christ-likeness, 
which itself is the full objective of our Christian church lives. That's why we're here, to become more like Christ. That's the goal of life for all who are in Christ, to become more like him. Keep in mind, dear saints, sin is never extracted from us for the simple purpose of our now being free from it, even though that's a wonderful thing to be liberated from sin, the power of it, and to be forgiven. That's a wonderful grace. There's nothing greater than that. That is a beautiful, tender, wonderful grace. But it's never done for us simply for that. Instead, iniquity is expunged from us in Jesus Christ's blood atonement alone for the purpose of strengthening our faith in him and enhancing our love for Christ the Father, the Holy Spirit, the church, and lost sinners around us. That's an important part of God taking our sin away in Jesus' blood. Say what we will about the Corinthian Christians, but they definitely got it right here in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 as they all of a sudden begin to defend their Apostle Paul and disciplined, forgave, and re-received the member that had so seriously offended him. And they were all together in love. Forgiven, loving, kind, gentle, sweet, tender. Good things came out of this. Now, was this whole process easy? (laughs) Hardly. Was it pain-free? No. That was the furthest thing from it. But it was thoroughly God-glorifying. It was 100% worth it. Now, as we go through the gut-wrenching experiences of having our old sin habits excised out of our hearts this week by the grace of God through Jesus Christ's atonement working through us by the power of the Holy Spirit, let us not grouse this drama. Let us not despise it. But rather, let us give our Heavenly Father thanks and praise for loving us so much that he does this work in us via the Holy Spirit. Why pain, faith, and love are inevitable aspects of life, even in the redeemed church, because sin is always being rooted out of us through sanctification. And this experience is not always pleasant, though the results are. So after we've been humbled in Christ, after we have suffered with him, after we have taken up our cross, after we have asked that we might participate in the fellowship of his sufferings, as per Philippians 2, as we find the lowest places we can in his church kingdom, God cultivates us in us a spirit of peaceful endurance, of kindly affection, and of gentle wisdom. Even the Corinthians demonstrated these God-given traits, which is vivid evidence of astounding spiritual grace in them, given to them by their Heavenly Father. And that same gracious Heavenly Father is at work in us today, even here, right now. He does this work through Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. As the gospel is preached, as we partake of Jesus, feast on him in the word and sacrament, pray to God through him, our one mediator, throughout the week. Where are you today on the spiritual Richter scale? Are you in the throes of a messy relinquishing of your sins? If so, if so, then know that you are supremely blessed because that is sure proof that God loves you in Christ Jesus. 
The Messiah suffered a lot for us on the cross, though he deserved none of it. We suffer a little bit for him, even though we deserve eternal torment. Christ has borne away all our sins, all of them. He's taken them away. This engenders love in us, growing faith, tenderness, kindness, compassion for others. His blood cleanses all our sins and his resurrection secures our justification. So what are we to do? Believe the gospel. Attach ourselves to Jesus. Enjoy him. Be his church and love him. Beloved, pain, faith, and love lead to joy, more faith, and more love. But only Jesus Christ can make sense of pain, faith, and love. Let's pray. Father, thank you for that truth. That only your Son can make, make sense of that. We thank you that you do redeem even our sins. Nothing goes wasted in your kingdom. Only you could do that, Father. We thank you that as a sovereign God, you work all things together for our good. And we thank you that you have given us the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Your Son, Jesus, and blood was shed for us. We thank you for his resurrection, and we commit our hearts to you in him today. In his name, amen.